This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Mustard gas is a weapon from a bygone era, and yet Colorado's home to a huge stockpile at the Army's Pueblo Chemical Depot. Under a treaty, the U.S. is required to destroy these weapons. So a plant was built to neutralize the agent using water. But there are problems, and now the Army's talking about a detonator. Peter Roper is covering the story for the Pueblo Chieftain. Hi, Peter. Hello, Ryan. Uh, Just a little background first. Why is all this mustard gas in Pueblo? Pueblo has had an army depot to the east of the town since World War II, where all kinds of munitions were made. Over the decades, they have just sat there. And what we're dealing with in Pueblo today is uh, the leftovers of that Cold War conflict. It it amounts to about 740,000 howitzer shells, mortar shells that have mustard agent inside them, and and they're in various levels of decay. Have any of the weapons been cleaned up? I mean, where is it in, in the process? Well, starting last September, a Defense Department agency called the Assembled Chemical Weapons Agency, they turned the key on a brand new water neutralization plant here in Pueblo, and they have basically destroyed about 40,000 of uh, these 740,000 rounds that are that are stored there. So they've, they've made a start on it. Um, there have been problems at the plant that have forced it to shut down periodically, and I think that's where we're, we're sort of having a problem today. Yeah, what has forced the plant to shut down? This is a new thing, right, building a plant that used water to neutralize this stuff? Yes, it was very important back in the 1990s when the decisions were being made as to how to do this. So a number of uh, groups in Colorado felt strongly they did not want just an old-fashioned weapons incinerator built here. And so the Army and the Pentagon, um, they worked with the community and they came up with this water neutralization system, which uh, uses water, uh, basically to dilute, highly dilute the mustard agent weapons. And and then they deal with all the byproducts. Um, It cost $4.3 billion to build. Bechtel built it and it began operations last September. The problem is some of these weapons are, are so hard to get apart that... That caused some problems. There was some contamination with inside the plant from some of the weapons. Now, it didn't jeopardize any people because these are basically sealed control rooms. Mm. But they were posing problems to how the system was going to do this. And so the Army started setting these aside. And to a certain degree, they expected a few problem rounds. And they actually have a small little, it's called a detonation chamber out at the depot now for dealing what they thought were going to be a small number of problem rounds. Unfortunately, they're running into more of those. And so the Army and the uh, what they call ACWA, the Assembled Chemical Weapons Agency, has suggested to the community they need what they call static detonation chambers, which in some ways are, are like an incinerator, but, there's, but the Army is quick to say, no, they're not incinerators because they don't involve any open flame. They're basically like a big kiln. Hmm. That you can take a problem around, a problem mortar shell that is leaking. You can just feed it into a conveyor belt that takes it into this chamber, which heats it up to a 1,000 degrees, and the weapon sort of just degrades. Sometimes it explodes. Sometimes it just falls apart. And the high heat basically neutralizes uh, the mustard agent weapon. So the Army has suggested that we they need two of those to get things running again. Both the state and the county would have to permit these things, allow them. So the idea is to have that... At the same time that you have the water process going, so in tandem. 
Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. And the Army has, uh, last week at their meeting with the local citizens advisory group, they emphasized heavily the, the long-term plan to destroy all these weapons by December 2023 is to use the water-based plant. Now, it, it's, it, it was created to do the high-volume work, but right now there's having to engineer, re-engineer some problems. Is the plant operating at all right now? Not right at the moment. Huh. They shut it. They shut it down earlier this spring because they were having some problems with internal vibrations shaking some of the pipes, and that's what Bechtel is trying to re-engineer right now. This is a pilot plant, so they're they're having to do some of this from scratch as they troubleshoot these problems. But the Army says that it is their long-term goal to get the plant running again, and and that was that will deal with the bulk of the munitions that are stored here. They're trying to hit a, a target date of, of December 2023. That is to have all of the uh, munitions neutralized. Right. Okay. And, uh, now, help us understand why the community didn't want incineration in the first place. Is there any science to back up that that's dangerous? And how that how the community feels about this alternative process for some of these tougher weapons? Well, back in the 90s, when this was really being debated and discussed, there was seemed to be a strong sense that they didn't like the idea of incineration. There was also some concerns about jobs. There was a way to deal with the problem in Pueblo. They wanted that to be done here. Because incineration would have happened somewhere else? Well, the Army did have a big incinerator out in the Pacific Ocean at a place called Johnson Atoll. Huh. And, there, and there was an incinerator at Tuella Army Depot in Utah. But the Utah state officials said, you're not transporting that stuff here. Um, so it was one of those situations nobody sort of wanted to be involved with this. So how, how does the community feel about this uh, idea of an alternative process that you, you describe as, as more like a kiln? I think they largely take the army at its word that the the water-based plant is still the ultimate answer. Mm-hmm. And the army makes a point of saying this is not an incinerator. Um, this is no open flame here. This is just like a big kiln uh, that will bake these things and reduce them to the point where you can re- literally just sort of uh, scrape up the metal and stuff from that is the leftover residue and take it to a landfill. But I don't think it has had quite a chance to set in. And, and in all honesty, I think some of the attitudes have changed. I think right now the public would be interested in just getting it done. Given how tricky some of these weapons are, is it going to cost a lot more to do this work? Well, at the moment, um, I believe each of the detonation chambers runs about $30 million. But that, that has been a question that's been raised in the community. Is there, under the Trump administration, will there be money for this? And I guess they, given the fact we only fund the federal budget, you know, almost seems like a few months at a time, um, I guess that's an open-ended question that hasn't been answered. Well, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Peter Roper is a reporter for the Pueblo Chieftain, talking about the Army's Pueblo Chemical Depot. Jails in this state face a lot of challenges. Many are overcrowded, some are dilapidated, and there's not a lot of money to address those problems. CPR's Allison Sherry recently toured some troubled county lockups to see for herself. Today, she takes us inside the Pueblo Jail, where deputies say overcrowding makes their work more dangerous. Most days, Pueblo's jail is at least a couple of hundred inmates over capacity. When I visited, two dozen people had just come in with opioid or heroin addictions. The suicide holding cells were full. And in one pod, 44 inmates were sharing two toilets. The maximum security areas were so overcrowded that some of the higher-risk, more dangerous inmates were mixed in with people in minimum security. 
Pueblo Undersheriff J.R. Hall says these conditions are hard on the employees. It's just uh, taxing on these on these young men and women, but they rise to the occasion every day, yeah. 365 days a year. A lot of people they forget that we're we're open on Christmas. Last Christmas Day, an inmate actually attacked a Pueblo County Jail guard. He grabbed the jailer's radio and beat him with it. The employee was out for several weeks recovering. The dangerous inmate was placed in solitary for the attack, in a cell with a glass door. Employee Heather Gonzalez had to work on the other side of that door. He threatened me a whole bunch this week to kick out the glass door, which is literally just a glass door between him and me. And I've been down there by myself, and he's currently a three-officer inmate, but we don't really have the manpower to staff extra people, you know? So, I mean, he threatened to kick the door through the window and come and jump over the desk and, you know, do physical harm to me. That was from a video produced by the sheriff's department to try and convince Pueblo County voters to raise the sales tax to build a new jail. The measure failed last year, and Lieutenant Douglas Sykes says now they're trying their best to make do. There's just no room in the inn. We only have so many hard bids, and then after that they got to go to the floor. We don't have a turnoff. If, if they arrested 100 more today, we would have to house them some kind of way. Statewide, from southern Colorado to the Denver metro area, county jails are teeming. The state legislature has looked at these issues, including a proposal to funnel $30 million to the county's jails to help them. But so far, it hasn't gone anywhere. Hello. Hi. Daily, Pueblo County employees say the jail is literally cracking under the burden of so many people. Pipes burst all the time. Guards routinely get doused with toilet water. And most importantly, the place isn't safe. Guard Heather Gonzalez. All everybody wants to do is go home safe to their families at the end of the day. And it's stressful, you know, a lot of these people, uh, my coworkers who are my brothers and sisters, that, you know, we're all have each other's backs. The sheriff and his staff worry about the summer, which is the jail's busiest time. They are looking at adding mobile trailers outside. They may try asking taxpayers for help again, but it won't be any time soon. Under Sheriff Hall. We know that the citizens turned down that type of tax for a new jail, and uh, we've been listening to them. They said not yet. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But the when part of solving Pueblo's jail problems remains unclear. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Ryan, you stepped way over the line. That's what I heard from a listener after my latest interview with Colorado's Governor John Hickenlooper. In light of nationwide protests calling for gun control, I asked him this question. Your son, Teddy, is in high school. I wonder, first off, if he participated in the walkout. You'd have to ask him. Did you talk to him about it? Well, I did, but I don't report on Teddy's conversations to the media. Hmm. Well, let me ask this. As a parent, do you worry about his safety in the classroom? Absolutely. And, And again... That is a major change. Scott Huffman of Denver writes about that interaction. Ryan, I've got to call you on this and say you stepped way over the line, separating public and private life. The same standards that are held to the president's children while growing up should apply to all public officials' children. Scott, I take your point. In retrospect, I should have started with the next question. What was the governor's experience as a parent as opposed to asking about his son's choices? In the same interview, Governor Hickenlooper expressed support for a so-called red flag gun law. 
which would prevent someone from having a gun for a while if a judge is convinced they could be dangerous. Steve Sorens is wary. He wrote at CPR.org, The governor says not to worry because they're temporary. Yeah, right. When have you ever seen anything in the government that's temporary? Once you get on that list, you'll never get off, no matter what. It's absolutely ripe for abuse through family fights, through domestic abusers, through neighborhood feuds. A few days after I was at the Capitol with the governor, there was a nationwide march to end gun violence. On Saturday afternoon, as those demonstrations took place, Colorado Matters and CPR News provided live coverage that sought to understand Coloradans' beliefs about guns on all sides. Some listeners thought our coverage should have focused only on the marchers and their desire for more gun control. This comment from Mary Smith of Hotchkiss is similar to several we received. I am very upset at your coverage of the march, the constant cutting away from the message to say there were people who didn't agree and giving that minority equal or more time. She called our coverage disgusting. If you have feedback to share, don't hold back. We air it regularly in Loud and Clear. You can find all the ways to reach us at CPR.org slash connect. Any day now, an abandoned Chinese space station should come hurtling through Earth's atmosphere. Tiangong-1 has been deteriorating in Earth's thin upper atmosphere, and originally the plan was to bring it down in a controlled way, but the Chinese lost contact with it a few years ago. Astronomer and science blogger Phil Plate of Boulder says satellites and rocket engines re-enter the atmosphere all the time, but... This thing is big. It's, um, you know, school bus-ish sized, and it weighs 9 to 10 tons. So uh, most of it will burn up in our atmosphere, but it's predicted that some pieces will make it to the Earth's surface. The question is where? The odds that parts would hit a populated area are very low, Plate says. They'd likely crash into the ocean, since water covers most of the planet. There is a small chance, though, that you'll be able to see the re-entry in Colorado, but the where and when is all a bit sketchy. It depends on a lot of things, how thick the atmosphere is, the shape of the uh, spacecraft. If it's long and thin and it's, it's sort of facing like an arrow, it's not going to have much drag. But if it's facing face on into the atmosphere, it's going to drop faster. So predicting where this thing is going to be more than uh, a, a day or two ahead is very difficult right now. That's why we don't know exactly when it's going to drop. Typically, Plate says, objects this big and this low are visible to the naked eye. On re-entry, it would look like a star or an airplane. This thing is orbiting at five miles per second, and we don't know exactly when it's going to come down. And so for every second that the prediction is off, you're off by five miles in the target. And so we really won't know when it's coming down until shortly before it does. The predictions all center around April 1st, plus or minus a couple of days. So it could come down as early as Thursday or uh, as late as sometime uh, early next week. Plate says he'll be tweeting once things are clearer, and you can follow him at Bad Astronomer, and we'll post some helpful links at CPR.org. A film nominated for an Oscar this year tells the true story of a young woman who hosted high-stakes poker games. She landed in the crosshairs of the FBI. 
But the movie starts before all that, when she was a world-class freestyle skier trying to make the Olympics. My father's at the bottom of the slope, telepathically telling me to check my line. Check your line. I check my line. Good snow contact, calm upper body, legs together, good shape, no line deviation. Set up for the D-spin and stick the landing. The intensity and pace of that narration are a tip-off. This film was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. It's called Molly's Game, and it's now streaming and on DVD. It is based on the life of Molly Bloom. She grew up in Loveland, Colorado. And when I talked to her recently, she was in the mountains with her family, I told her that I don't think I breathed for the first five minutes of this film. You and me both. <laughs> you had that experience. Maybe for different reasons. <laughs> why, why weren't you breathing at the beginning? You know, I was just sitting in a theater of 2,000 people watching a movie about my life for the first time, kind of not knowing what the next two hours and 12 minutes was going to hold. And and then, you know, also because of that opening scene and just kind of how dramatic and exciting it is, but mostly, you know, just out of terror <laughs> that I had actually <laughs> asked someone to write a movie about my life. Yeah, I mean, when I first heard about your story, I had trouble believing it really happened. I mean, uh-huh. when, when you look back on it, does it feel that way to you? Yes. I mean, I just, it, it, I'm like, there's no way I could do that, any of that now. I'm too tired. You're too tired. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I'd like to start with how a pine bough, a, a little bit of tree, mm-hmm. changed the trajectory of your life. So I was on the last, basically the last run of my ski career, which I didn't know going into would be the last run, but, um, it was actually a contest that enabled all the competitors that were invited to qualify for the Olympics that year. And I was skiing better than I'd ever skied. And, you know, I was at the top of the course and it was a really low visibility day. And on low visibility days, they break off pieces of a tree, pine boughs, and put them on the course to kind of show depth. My boots are basically welded to my skis, right? So how does this happen? It happened because I hit a pine bough that had become frozen in the snow. And I hit it so precisely that it simply snapped the release of my bindings. Right in that moment, I didn't have time to calculate the odds of that happening because I was about to land pretty hard on my digitally remastered spinal cord, which was being held together by spare parts from an erector set. I love that Aaron focused on that. I love that he focused on, you know, tripping on a stick and the actual stick and then also the metaphor because I think everybody can relate to that. There's this moment, this unexpected thing happens and the trajectory of your life is completely changed. And in those moments, you fixate on that moment and you relive it a million times because you don't have hindsight and you don't have Aaron Sorkin to connect the dots But it was so interesting to watch it as an observer to see how your life lines up because of those tripping on a stick moments. And what do you remember from what what is a really spectacular fall? (laughs) Um, Just, you know, the the sort of the way that you recall any kind of trauma, it's it's in flashes, it's in snippets, and then... The dust settles and and then you have all that time to reflect, you know, and you're like, wow, I have to walk away from this thing that that I've pursued and chased my whole life, this dream 
that has consumed me and consumed my life. And I was really, you know, kind of counting on this is the way my life was going to go and the painful process of having to walk away from something that you really love and also the fear of that uncertainty of what your life looks like going forward, how to fill that space. You moved to L.A., took a job at a bar, and a customer eventually asked you to work for him as a personal assistant. And a part of the gig was running his regular poker games. Right. I think the buy-in then was 10000 bucks. Is that right? Yes, that's yeah. correct. Okay, that, that's a hefty buy-in. Uh, this is not your everyday poker game. Right, it's not the ever, your everyday poker game because of the numbers and also because of the players that populate at the table. Tell me about them. And, and I want to say, keeping them anonymous, not revealing who they are, is really important to you. That point is made in the film. But what types of people are we talking about who are at the table? Well, there are some people that I can name the names um, because they were already outed in the public medium, you know, and I had nothing to do with that. And they themselves have um, freely admitted to playing in the game. So those names are sort of on the table. And, um, you know, some of the names that people would recognize, Leonardo DiCaprio, Ben Affleck, Tobey Maguire, um, down the road, Alex Rodriguez, you know, just these these people that you just never thought you would cross paths with. I just finished counting out $90,000 in cash. I was in a room with movie stars, directors, rappers, boxers, and business titans. They were going all in, all the time, burning through their buy-ins over and over. Here you go. Good luck. Thank you so much. I don't know. I googled every word I heard that I didn't know. Flop, river, fourth street, tilt, cooler, boat, nuts, playing the rush. And I had a light bulb moment when I walked into that room. Um, I had no idea what I was looking at. I had no idea how to play poker, um, what was happening at the table, what the words were that they were saying. But I had a really strong feeling that access to this network and this information is not an opportunity that comes along every day. And I really wanted to stay in that room because of that. I was a fly on the wall in this Masters of the Universe secret underground club. So I really saw it as a, as a huge opportunity for network and information and yeah, access. I, I think that's maybe what separates you from how so many other people would act in that arena. They might just feel like a fly in the wall. You saw opportunity. What did you think you could get out of that room that kept you there and that eventually led you to become what some people, I don't know, I think dismissively dubbed the poker princess. <laughs> well, I think that in order to adequately answer that question, you have to know what, you know, a little bit of the background. I grew up in this ridiculously high achieving family. You know, I have a brother that world champion, two-time Olympian and, and played in the NFL. I have another brother Harvard-educated cardiothoracic surgeon, and I had just seen two of my biggest dreams sort of die. And so I so wanted to have a significant life, and I so wanted to establish myself in a unique way. And it was exciting. And it, and again, like I said, how do you find something that fills the space of being you know, a U.S. ski team athlete. So I just went for it because I, I, I had that big open space that led me in some pretty dysfunctional directions, but that's where we were, you know. Dysfunctional directions. What was the, <laughs> what was the most dysfunctional direction this led you oh in? Oh my gosh, geez, I don't even know you have all day. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, ultimately, um, 
in the beginning, I think I was pursuing it with discipline, with an entrepreneurial spirit and with balance. And, you know, I observed the game for a year. I learned all about it. I learned about the people that were playing it. I learned about the rules of the game. Um, And then I clearly saw that the next move was to be the owner-operator. And so I started my own game. And I controlled the list. I controlled the credit. I controlled the the environment in this super-secret sort of clandestine underground world. And the buy-ins became really expensive. I mean, much more than 10000 Right. So when I started the game, my own, it was a $50,000 buy-in because I sensed my cl- the clients could sustain that um, I, and, the, and they wanted that. And then that, you know, sort of created more mythology, which is always good when you're starting a company. You know what? You want the, you want the myth there. You want the product to be good, etc. The game was mine now. I incorporated and Molly Bloom event planning was born. I paid taxes and 1099 my employees. I never became romantically or sexually involved with any of the players. The game would have fallen apart. This was back when I was still making good decisions. And I went to a lawyer to make absolutely sure all this was legal. I took it by coastal, L.A., New York. And then, ultimately, I took over. uh, I became the bank. And I was extending credit, and I was vetting people, and I was recruiting people from all over the world. And I was on the hook if someone didn't pay. Up until that point, you know, I think I had made some pretty smart decisions. I wasn't taking a rake yet because I knew, and a rake is where you take a percentage of the pot. And which is illegal. Correct. So Because I knew it was illegal. I knew that that was the step over the line in this gray area that I was living. You know, up until that point, I was paying my taxes. I was, um, I was trying to, to skate that. So I was making all these smart decisions. And then at some point, and I don't know exactly when it was, but I definitely got overcome with greed and, you know, sort of lost myself in this. And then there was a turning point and things, you know, I, I, I built the game too big. I was extending too much credit. I was getting stiff too often. Both the Russian mob and the Italian mob got involved. And then I decided to take a rake, which I knew now I was in violation of a federal law. Mm-hmm. So that's just a, you know, a little casual start to the dysfunction. And and if the movie is true to your life, you were also using Adderall and Valium and Xanax and Coke oh, yeah, to stay awake. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I built this unsustainable life and then instead of making it sustainable or finding balance, I brought in drugs to stay up, drugs to come down and deal with the anxiety. Why would you want this story to be told? I mean it's listen, there's glamour in it for sure. There's this sense of how far you were able to advance in this world. But gosh, you're also showing a lot of the the ugliness and your failings. Yeah. Look, I'd love to tell you that it was this altruistic endeavor to so that people could, you know, learn from it. But the <laughs> truth is, is it was my solution at the time. You know, I was um, all I wanted to do after I got arrested and federally indicted and, you know, assaulted by the mob and had to not had to put myself in rehab was to just bury it, you know? for it to just go away. But the truth is, is that I needed to save my own life and I needed, uh, I needed a solution to, you know, my reputation being in tatters to the massive financial debt that I had acquired to, um, the people that I had sort of dragged down into my mess with me, like my mom who put her house on the house up to bail me out of jail and my criminal attorney who personally vouched for me when I didn't have any money to fight it. So, when I kind of took an inventory and looked at the wreckage, I just landed on that. I thought that the story was the 
most monetizable asset. Hmm. And uh, the best way for a convicted felon who's millions of dollars in debt to maybe do some reputation repair, you know? Hmm. You know, there's been some great unexpected outcomes in that getting really honest is super liberating, you know? Just owning it all really allows you to find some freedom in it. I get messages all the time on a daily basis from people who said, you've inspired me to keep going after I made all these mistakes or, you know, to reinvent myself. So those are all like really great added bonuses, but I can't say that that was the inspiration, you know, if I'm being honest. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Molly Bloom, whose real life story inspired the movie Molly's Game. Uh, from Aaron Sorkin, and it's her story of becoming an Olympic-level skier to becoming uh, what many dubbed the poker princess, running high-stakes games for the most elite on the planet and eventually getting arrested for taking a rake, violating the law and doing that. And this film is is about uh, relationships in many ways, the relationship between you and your attorney, for instance. But mm-hmm. the one I, I want to focus on right now is the relationship between you and I think predominantly, if not exclusively, the men who played poker. Were they all men at the table? Yes. Yeah. There's just this gender dynamic mm-hmm. um, in the film – you're described as the anti-wife. The, the, the men idolize you. You like poetry? I did until a second ago. I'm going to call you. I, okay. I'm in love with you. This isn't happening. Plain and simple. You're the woman I've always dreamed of, and I've been dreaming. Stop it. Listen to me, Douglas. I'm the woman all of you have always dreamed of. I'm the anti-wife. I encourage your gambling. I have drinks served to you by models who simultaneously create the impression that you're the kind of guy who can score a dime piece anytime you want. It's nice for you in here. Well, the reference to being an anti-wife is something that I told Aaron, and I would tell them, look, this isn't reality. You know, this is, I'm doing a job here. If you were my boyfriend, I would not be so understanding about you being out three nights in a row and losing millions of dollars. You know, I, I think that in a strange way, because I was a woman, enabled me to have a, a very different perspective on, on a poker game in terms of understanding that business and life is about relationships. It's about building relationships. It's about being understanding. It's about um, focusing on the quote-unquote client as a human being as well and having empathy for them when they lost a lot of money or when, when their life fell apart or when they were having different issues. And, you know, something that I landed on that really helped me build this business was that these guys wanted experiences. They were so rich, they could have, they could buy anything. But what they wanted was, you know, this moment in time where they got to be someone else or have this transformational experience or have this, you know, blood sport competition and, and just be outside of themselves. I mean, another reason they were there is they were addicted. I mean, there's just like, well, no that's doubt the that, other part of yeah, it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it took me a couple of years to realize that. But I didn't walk away. I, I continued to make the games bigger and, and more compelling. And that's something that I think ultimately led to some of the bad, reckless decisions. Because if you don't like who you're being, if you can't lay your head down at night, then I think everything starts to fall apart from there. Is your family proud of you? They're very proud of me now. I mean, very proud. In, a, in an authentic way, not just the like, we're your family, so we're just 
technically forced to be proud of you. Uh (laughs) It's real now. Where is their pride coming from? Their pride's coming from how I handled standing up for the consequences of, of the mistakes that I had made, not telling on people. And there's a big source of pride that I was, I had this dream of writing and publishing a, a memoir and then getting in specifically Aaron Sorkin to write it. People thought I was crazy. Um, but I really thought that he was the right person for this and he was my favorite writer. And, but I think the largest, um, source of pride by far is what I've done since, which is get sober, take responsibility for everything, make it a a real life goal of mine to be a better daughter, a better sister, a better friend, a better human being, and showing up and and doing the work. So you have Aaron Sorkin writing your life story. You have Jessica Chastain playing you, narrating the, the chapters of your life throughout the film. It's actually, it's crazy how similar your voices are. She talks a lot like you. She really, she nailed me. It's so bizarre to watch, you know. Um, Has this just been freaky? How how has it been to have these very well-known, very talented people bring this to life? It's been very surreal and dreamlike and then so humbling too. Like I'm just in so much gratitude all the time. It's just bizarre. There just really aren't words. Earlier in our conversation, you said you were sort of exhausted. You couldn't imagine keeping up that that kind of (laughs) poker life anymore. What are you doing these days? I always thought that the thing that was going to fill me up, you know, fill fill in that existential emptiness was these external accolades, success, money, power, etc. And I've been rich and poor a couple times over, you know, and, and successful and decimated and that never changed. It only started to change when I leaned into things like meditation to a 12-step program. And ultimately what I would like to do is take some of my know-how about building a network, um, building a business, and just an idea that, I, that I've been throwing around is I would love to create a social club or a co-working space for women that really is charged with a mission to, you know, if you've been successful, you reach back and you, and you, and you help lift another woman up. And, and to me, this is not at the exclusion of males at all. It's just that actually through AA, I've seen how much power and how much impact you can have by building communities around shared experience. Okay. Very quickly before we go, are you still skiing at all? I'm still skiing. I skied yesterday with my family. Okay. Yeah. At a basin. Yeah, I don't know why I ever left Colorado. I'm like in heaven here. I'm never leaving again. And do you like poker? And do you ever play? I never play. I never played. I think poker uh, in the right context can be an incredible game that teaches you about business and about risk and about human psychology. And then I think there's a context where it can be really dysfunctional and sick. Well, we'll, we'll fold there. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Molly Bloom talked with us from the high country where she was skiing with her family. The film Molly's Game, based on her life, is now out on streaming and DVD. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now, the story of a team that apparently doesn't know how to lose. Prepare your ears because the needle's going to jump during this call. 
hit up well the hit middle up the to middle. center field. One run comes in. The throw to the plate is not in time. Zoe Pakes, two RBI single. Mavericks win in walk-off fashion 10-2. to Their 30th consecutive win, a new school record. Colorado Mesa out of Grand Junction is the top-ranked team in the NCAA Division II softball. And yet, the Mavericks are in the midst of a balancing act, caught between the thrill of their 30 consecutive victories and the pressure of a looming postseason. Head coach Ben Garcia and senior outfielder Brooke Hodgson are with us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Welcome to you both. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Hi. <laughs> uh, Brooke, last weekend, your team actually trailed in two of its four games against the Colorado School of Mines. The first time in more than a month that you were losing a game. How, how concerned were you that the winning streak might come to an end? Um, I don't think we were ever thinking about the winning streak. We kind of just put that aside. Um, our goal is just to go out every game and compete one game at a time. And I think it was good that we had those games this weekend because um, we had to fight through some adversity. And, you know, it showed what true character we have as a team. And, you know, it gives us confidence for the rest of the season then that we can fight through anything. Okay, I have a hard time believing that it's easy to to <laughs> put away, put aside the winning streak, to not think about that. How, how do you do that? I mean, like I said, we don't really talk about it. Um, <laughs> I know the media always likes to hype it up, but we coach keeps us grounded at practice. You know, we're always competing against each other. Um, and really, we're just trying to go play our best softball, and so we just take it one game at a time, and that's kind of keeping us level-headed. But, Coach, doesn't this make the team a target? In other words, don't you have a lot of teams out there saying, we're going to be the ones to end this winning streak? We, you know, it really does. But the thing that I've tried to do is, as Brooke had mentioned, we, we really are humble in what we're trying to accomplish. We've got some goals set that we've got a long way to go still, and we want to make sure that we're trying to reach those goals and be able to go a step further than what we've done in years past. Uh, I, I tell you the truth, the, the streak was probably a lot harder on me than it was on them because <laughs> I hadn't seen adversity all year, and, and all of a sudden to be down by one run in the first game and then two runs in that uh, uh, on the Sunday, the double hitter, you know, it was kind of like, um, you know, this isn't supposed to happen. And, but again, they're very resilient. They they compete every day in, in uh, practice and. I don't think there was a whole lot of alarm. They thought, hey, we're going to score some runs. It's just a matter of of time. Who's going to start it and then uh, how are we going to finish this? Is there a small part of you that roots for like one loss just to take the pressure off before the postseason? Well, my comment after the first game uh, where it was so close uh-huh. was I, I was a little adamant that that was our loss. <laughs> I had mentioned to him, I said, hey, if we have to come close to losing a game, take that as your loss and, and let's build on that. Learn from our mistakes and, and kind of get better in this situation. It's a great comeback, but let's use that as motivation to go forward. And and I think they did. Obviously, throughout the year, they've been able to re- regroup and you know, kind of push each other, but we're using that as our loss. So hopefully that's as close as we get for now. I hear a lot of humility on this team, or at least a goal to be humble. Do you think that's true, Brooke? Yeah, I think it's true. Um, 
being with the program now for four years, I've seen it grow and stuff, and we've gone, got over some humps. Um, two years ago, we made it to the regional championship with the number one team, West Texas A&M at the time. Last year, same thing, lost to Angelo State. They were yeah. number one at the time. And, you know, this year we set out the goal just to get over that hump and to make it past what we have in the years in past. And I think we've set ourselves up so well for that this year that we're not going to stop at this point. We're just going to keep pushing through. One advantage that you may have during the NCAA tournament would be to host. Uh, you were mm-hmm. on last year's team, again, which lost the regional final to Angelo State on their home field in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you beat them earlier uh, this year, I think, at a neutral site. So what, what's the difference between playing a really good team at home versus at their place? I mean, is it comfort? Is it intimidation? Um, I would, yeah, I would definitely say comfort. I mean, we haven't lost at home in a while, so that's nice to know. We have our fans there supporting us. Um, we feel really good. You know, home field advantage is always there. And I think playing them at a neutral site in the beginning of the season was our, our exact goal. And that's why we set up that tournament in New Mexico. And we wanted to play teams in our region and get them kind of out of Texas, come to us, or at least a halfway point and, you know, see what goes from there. And it actually ended up working for us this year. Coach, you started the year with a pretty ambitious non-conference schedule, playing some high-ranking teams from Texas, among others. Uh, how important has that been in terms of preparing for the postseason? Well, I think it's it's really important that it gave us an opportunity to set the standards and to be able to play in that region. Again, the thing that uh, we've had situations uh, that haven't been in our favor in the past is playing in that region and not being able to compete against the Texas teams or not having that opportunity. So what we set out to do was to be able to see if we can get them down to play yeah. at a neutral site, wherever, and get an opportunity to be able to compete with them so that we can move up in those rankings and then the possibility of hosting. We knew if we were going to host that we needed to take care of business. We've done that, but you know, in the humility part, uh, being humble is really, we know playing a college team because they recruit just like us, do everything that we do. On a weekend, playing four games against the same team is very difficult to stay up for four games. But our ambition is to win four games. It's not to win a series. It's to to go through it if we can. How much do your long-term goals mesh with playing in the Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference, which last weekend notwithstanding isn't regarded as a particularly strong conference? I mean, you've won 85% of your RMAC games. You know? Well, and that's that's true. You know, it's a it's a situation where we need to take care of business with the teams that we're supposed to do that. And the good part about the end of our season is we play the top two, uh, the top teams in the in the RMAC coming up uh, in the last couple of weeks of our season. So we think that's going to be able to get us ready for the postseason. Obviously, that's what we're shooting for. To be able to play Regis and uh, Colorado Christian late in the season is just going to make us better. Th- this weekend proved that playing uh, Mines, which is a very good team. I think they've had some problems with some defense and different things like that. But that's a very good team. They're going to be reckoned with uh, towards the end of the season, I'm sure. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking Maverick softball out of Colorado Mesa University, this team that has 30 straight wins. And, uh, Brooke, you're leading the country in a number of categories, including hits, 
And uh, last weekend, you set Armac's record for career runs batted in. You now have 245. Uh, does feasting on conference pitchers the way you have help you going into the postseason, or will there be a readjustment to the competition you'll see there? Um, I think it's definitely helped me, but with the RBI uh, record and stuff, I definitely have to give credit to all the people that hit in front of me. My slappers do a great job of getting on base. You know, they're making my job super easy in the RMAC. They're constantly on. There's probably never a time that they don't, you know, find a way to get in scoring position. So it makes my job, um, Ann's job, all the people below me super easy. We just have to hit them in, you know, find a way. Uh, which speaks to a lack of ego in some regards in you, Brooke. Which is, is that true, Coach? Is she as humble as she's coming across? <laughs> she is. You know, and the the, the part about uh, all the the players that have come. Brooke has just set the standard. You know, the the thing that I've mentioned to anybody that asks is what what do I think about Brooke? Well, not only is she our best player but she's our hardest worker and that's a huge credit because the the sample or the example is there for all the young ones to be able to aspire to hey if you want to be a good ball player then take a page out of you know her book because she does it the right way we'll say that colorado mesa has four weeks left in the regular season and then the conference tournament uh, will also be held in grand junction coach at this point you've accomplished a great deal you're 30 and 0 and making the regional round of the NCAA tournament would seem to be a lock. Uh, but is it national championship or bust? I mean, what would what would constitute success? No, it isn't. You know, we we want to be able to play as best we can. Our motto has always been if there's a better team and and there could be. Uh, you know, right now we think that we're the best team in the nation, but if there's a better team, we want to play them, so it gives us, uh, you know, that opportunity to get better and, and try and figure out, all right, what do we need to do to be able to compete? And that's what we've done, you know, Brooks' freshman year. We went down to Dixie and got beat up pretty good, and, and our goal has always been let's compete with the best in the nation, and we think we've done that uh, for the last three years, and this year, we know we're the, the hunted. We know that the, the target has become a lot larger, but we're up to the task because in practice, that's what we do. We compete, uh, as Brooke had mentioned, every single day. We've got the best pitchers in the nation throwing at us. So to be able to hit against them, I think, sets us up for you know the opponents. I'm hesitant to say congratulations. I'm afraid of jinxing things. <laughs> so I'll just leave it at thanks for being with us. Thanks. We knock Thank on you. wood a lot, so we're, we're, we think we're pretty safe. <laughs> so you heard from Ben Garcia, head softball coach at Colorado Mesa. Brooke Hodgson is a senior outfielder on the team. They joined us from Grand Junction to talk about the Mavericks' record-setting season, a perfect 30-0. and 0. Finally today, classical violinists were a bit jealous of Harumi Rhodes after news broke about her new gig. She'll take over as second violinist in the Takach Quartet, the Grammy-winning ensemble based in Boulder that tours the globe. Rhodes, who teaches violin at CU, recently showed off her skills as a soloist in the CPR Performance Studio. She played a somber, lyrical excerpt from Leosh Janacek's Violin Sonata, with accompaniment from pianist David Korovar. 
Rhodes' new job in the Takach Quartet becomes official May 1st. She replaces Carolee Schranz, who helped found the group in 1975. That's That's Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's get the name of the host and the show straight. This is CPR News.